we have a real opportunity in this in this time now as these paradigms shift where we just stop saying the words that have been um, forcing us into guilt and shame and fear around food. You know, it's time for us to embrace that health and hedonism are not mutually exclusive terms, that you can have a pleasurable burger. You can love it. You can love it. It can bring so many gorgeous memories to you and, um, you know, you if that's if that's what you want and if that's what nourishes you in that moment then have it you know enjoy it bite take every bite and relish it and enjoy those meals with your family hello and welcome to the 99% fad free nutrition and health podcast i'm your host tara leong a registered nutritionist coming to you today from sunny noosa in queensland australia As well as tackling fad diets and superfood wankery, I love to cook and I love to inspire other people to get into the kitchen, exploring and trying new things. And that's why I've asked this week's guest, Alice Zaslavsky, to come on the show. You may know Alice as the bubbly MasterChef contestant or the school teacher with the big statement glasses. You may have seen her hosting foodie TV shows. For kids. She's a mum, an author, a public speaker, an MC, and she's interviewed every chef, cook, and foodie there is. Nigella Lawson has even labelled her a force of nature, and I would have to agree. Alice has continued to power on to form a formidable career in helping people love cooking and love food, and that's why I love Alice. Welcome to the show. Oh, Alice. it's Tara. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for picking up what I put down. <laughs> oh, I, I've invited uh, you on the show today because you really do love food and cooking and I'm really interested to hear about your philosophy about food uh, during the show today. Um, and I'd love to start out with by understanding how you got to where you are now because out of all the directions you could have gone on from following MasterChef, which is a quite a long time ago now, you chose to not move into desserts or baking, but you mo- moved into the space of veggies and getting people to embrace them and really just to become relaxed around cooking and getting into the kitchen. Can you talk us through how that came to be? Yeah, I think having been a teacher before MasterChef, it was always going to be a path of figuring out how I could connect people with new ideas and continue to do what it was that I loved about teaching, which is actually take some challenging subject matter, like, for example, the plague, and make it interesting. So I think probably the reason why vegetables are something that I gravitated towards in terms of connecting people to them is because I saw them as something that people had undervalued for a really long time. And I think of vegetables as a little bit of a metaphor, I suppose, um, in that, you know, they, they seem humble they're in the ground from a status perspective. You know, I was reading a, a, pap- a paper just yesterday about the fact that, you know, back in the day, the elite, the um, kind of the upper classes saw vegetables that grew in the ground as something that was 
inherently dirty and something that wasn't um, to be valued and they, they would only eat food that had grown on trees. Can you imagine? Like they only ate fruit. Yes. So um, I think that that has still got had some ripple effects and that kind of devaluing and, and kind of much maligned um, attitude that people have to vegetables is something that gets carried into other parts of our lives. Now, let's go deep for a brief moment. <clears throat> Please. So when we are teaching kids to love food and when we have our own preconceived kind of expectations of what it is that they are going to enjoy and what it is that they are not going to enjoy, um, and I know that people that listen to this podcast already know what it is that I'm talking about, but I'll just to clarify, I'm, I'm saying that we expect kids to like sweets and to um, enjoy desserts and we kind of expect them to be less um, embracing of new new vegetables and new fresh foods which is actually bullshit um, because there is yeah. nothing more enjoyable than seeing um, our toddler Hazel you know ch- chomp into a, a snow pea or you know she she really finds joy in that because she sees us finding joy in it but what happens over time the more that we um, set those expectations for ourselves, the more that that bleeds into our kids' experience of life and the more that we're actually also subconsciously training them to learn that if there is something new or other or unfamiliar, other with a capital O, in Mm. their lives, then they are also welcome to reject that as well. Um, Or, you know, if it's something that's forced on them. So that's another approach that people have taken. Well, why don't you just put it on the plate and that's all that they've got to eat? You know, that kind of um, authoritarian style of um, feeding. That has its own ramifications as well, because that very much backfires in a repression of personal agency and personal kind of um, understanding of what it is of our likes and dislikes. And so then there, there grows to be a resentment of the other and, oh, well, you know, I was forced to eat this as a kid. Um, I was forced to to just try this so why don't I you know so now I've got my own set ways and that's just what I'm gonna do so yeah yeah mum forced me to eat Brussels sprouts now I don't like them and I don't have to like them because mum forced them down my 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 throat and I'm never gonna try them ever again ever again and it is and actually you know from the perspective of the mother capital T capital M that's kind of the archetype that we think about when we even kind of um, when we talk about vegetables too, you know, and and parents come from a place of nourishing their children in as in the best way that they possibly can, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, um, whole foods all the time. That means that if they had a beautiful experience um, going to a fast food restaurant with their grandparents or their parents and they want to have that similar connection with their own children, then that's what they're going to do, you know, and that and that's a beautiful, comfortable place. Or, you know, it might be, you know, those ads for like Werther's Originals, for example. Um, I don't know um, if that's an ad that translates to other parts of the world, but, you know, there's a little old grandpa with his little grandson and he pulls out a little butterscotch lolly and he gives it to the grandson and that grandson loves it too, you know. And so... And so um, all of those kind of tropes, kinds of tropes, when it comes to vegetables, often those kind of um, 
Those stories that are told around that messaging tend to either be from the perspective of health or um, from the perspective of like forcing, right? Forcing. Forcing. Yeah, Yeah. and and, there have been so many studies on this now over the past decade that really do show very, very clearly that uh, forcing children uh, to eat vegetables or certain foods it, it, it does backfire. So what it does is it creates that negative association with that food and it also makes them crave the other foods even more. So the things like the lollies, chips and ice cream. And a lot of when I speak to parents about this, often they say, well, I don't force my child to eat food. I don't like strap them to the table and shove it in their mouth. But they are, they're, the, the types of force are as simple as come on, Johnny, you need to eat three more bites of your broccoli or you don't get dessert until you've finished trying this asparagus um, or finish everything on your plate and you're not allowed off the table until you're done. So they're all very subtle ways of force that really do backfire. And unfortunately, they have been inbuilt into us and our generation from our parents. Exactly. I think the good thing is that we we can kind of face that and tackle that and recognize oh my gosh yes I do sound just like my mother or my father when I'm feeding my children and this is what this is what the new science says so let's try something different totally and, and I think that's important and and one thing you know I'm, I'm one book in particular I'm rereading at the moment is B Wilson's first bite which I would highly recommend if if your ears are pricking up and you're thinking oh this is interesting um, that's one book that I really really love and obviously Ellen Satter's um, book uh, child of mine is another um, just kind of seminal work that I just absolutely love in terms of division of responsibility. But in B's book, she talks about even studies where they they tested kids with the yellow soup study, where they would give um, two groups of kids the same soup. And one group, they would even just sit next to them and say, what do you think of the soup? How are you finding the soup? Do you want some more soup? And over time, even that was a level of coercion that actually made kids dislike what it is that they were eating. So um, I don't know how we got into this, but isn't that funny, Tara, that that's where it we is, went, yeah. which is something that I totally, I was like, we're not going to talk about kids today. I'm, I am not going to talk about kids and vegetables. <laughs> like a minute. We will talk about other stuff we as well. Yes. Um, but I think it's very important to also, even if people don't have children, I find that this is very helpful for people to understand maybe some learned behaviours mm. that they have from their parents. Yeah. So... Um, I've been able to help um, uh, people in the past who are young women and talk to them about how we do feed children, how we force food on them. And they go, oh, my gosh, that's why I sit and have three platefuls of food, you know, because mum used to do do it this way or what have you. So I think what we've got to talk about today is is pretty, pretty relevant. Yes. Um, but, you know, going back to um, the soup study and asking, you know, that the parents kind of sitting there going, how do you like it? You know, is it yummy? <laughs> I see I see parents do this all the time and it really comes from us within ourselves. and often as a caregiver um, 
our own insecurities around being a really great parent. Mm. And sometimes we're looking to the children for that validation to kind of go, oh, mum, this is the most delicious meal I've ever had and therefore you're a wonderful mother. Um, (laughs) But usually we're a really awesome caregiver anyway to start with and we're never going to get that validation from a three-year-old. And just because they don't like our lemon chicken that we lovingly created for three hours in the kitchen doesn't mean they don't love us and I do see a lot of parents often serve up vegetables and they try and do new things in a different way and so much is hanging on Mm. oh my gosh will my child eat this and so they sit and they hover and they you know come on oh is it yummy is it yummy and and there's so much pressure if my husband did that to me while I was um having my dinner I would I would get really cranky at him <laughs> you know if you and I went for um coffee and I sat there going how's your slice is it nice what does it taste like is it crunchy what sound does it make um you'd be like oh you know heck get off my back Tara can we just talk about nappies and diapers for a second <laughs> <laughs> exactly and and I think that's actually I'm really glad that you mentioned that um kind of healing ourselves and and seeing what it is that that we were taught as kids has implications for the rest of our lives. You know, I went for yum cha with friends and there was a, a guy that I'd not met before, but he he didn't want to try anything new. You know, he wanted to stick yes. to just one thing. And when I asked him, you know, why, why, why are you doing that? Um, he said, well, because I, I didn't have to, you know, I was never given it as a, as a kid um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's fine. And I kind of th- thought about it, and I think at the time I hadn't thought about it enough. Thinking about it now, what he meant is that maybe by that point his parents had given up, right? So that they'd tried the authoritarian thing, they'd tried the like, what do you what do you think? Do you like it? And they got to a point of permissive parenting where it was just like, you know what, you just eat what you eat, and we'll just. Um, that's it. <laughs> Just throw up our yeah, hands. Yeah, and we yeah. see that a lot. That you you do see that a lot nowadays because this life is really, really bloody hard, isn't it? And then to have to have an argument with a three year old that she doesn't want to eat what's on her plate, you you kind of there's days where you do anything to try and prevent that. Um, but the thing is that that can turn into. A habit where then the child does just get to demand what they they eat Home. every day, and then they grow into adults that are twenty year old and and and, <laughs> and have never out eaten on yum cha. They're missing out. That's every right. Dumpling. That's right. So I guess that's that uh, brings us back to the first point, doesn't it? About why you um, <laughs> yes. have have chosen vegetables into the veggie ladies because people are missing out Tara Mm, I'm so glad I'm so glad you've segued back to that because you're right that's that's the place that vegetables for me come from because I was blessed to grow up in a family in a culture in a cuisine you know Georgian food is very vegetable forward by nature um Eastern Europe, particularly, you know, during the time of the Soviet Union, we ate a lot of vegetables because they were easy to grow and cheap to buy. So we found ways to make them delicious. And so I grew up thinking that that's just what everyone's experience of vegetables was. And I came to a point as a as an adult, um, particularly through MasterChef, you know, what I look looking back, this was close to a decade ago. I realized that on MasterChef, my most successful dishes were my vegetable-driven dishes, um, and I just hadn't kind of, you know, tweaked enough to make that my niche, to make that my, oh, 
she's the best. Um, you know, because everyone's kind of got their little um, pigeonhole that, that, that they're put in and the neater your pigeonhole, the easier it is to kind of just kind of cook within that. And I spent a long time thinking, what's my niche? What's my niche? And, you know, it drives you, it drives you nuts when you're on the show. But um, looking back, it was things like the squid ink gnocchi with um, deep fried Jerusalem, with deep fried artichokes that I did in um, Italy for Massimo Bottura. And, you know, I did some incredible kind of other kind of veggie, yummy dishes. Um, but then through my career in food, I just found myself gravitating towards talking about vegetables or eating vegetables. When I was a restaurant critic, I was always looking down the menu and seeing what chefs were doing with them. Um, whenever I was sort of hosting a demo with a chef, I was most interested to see what it was that they were doing with an onion or with a zucchini. And, you know, that was really fascinating to me. And so when it came time to writing a book for grown-ups, I knew that it was going to be a vegetable-driven book because that's just what I love. I suppose I've been hosting a segment on ABC Radio here in Melbourne for quite a number of years called The Veg Seg, um, where people call in and we talk about a different seasonal vegetable. And I obviously, with my work with Phenomenom, which is a, a digital toolkit for kids to help teachers and parents encourage kids to love fresh food through cultivating curiosity without ever saying, you know, it's healthy, it's good for you, any of that stuff. It's more about, isn't it interesting? Would you like to know more? And hey, guess what? Your numeracy and literacy is going to go through the roof as well. Um, and what we realized through our research with Phenomenon, and didn't just realize it, you know, we have close to half a million dollars worth of insights um, that were funded by government and industry through Hort Innovation. You know, those insights told us that the kids were really resonating with what we were doing, but that now it was time for me to arm the parents with the tools to actually be able to slam dunk uh, vegetables and fresh food into kids' uh, plates, into their hearts with mm. delicious flavours. And actually the other thing that I think the book does, which I'm really happy to do, um, and continue facilitating as an English teacher is provide language and provide some other conversation points, talking points for people to start their conversations around vegetables so that we stop saying, oh, Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Right? It's kind of more like, did you know that when Brussels sprouts came to America, they needed to hire an influencer, like an ambassador, who was a, um, he was a, his name was Tom Thumb. And they were the Tom Thumb cabbages, you know, they were little tiny cabbages. Like, I think that's just so interesting. There's so much history around this um, this ingredient, these ingredients, because they've been around for so long that I think it also gives us a little bit of an insight into food, culture, cuisine, the environment, you know, be before we even start to talk about health. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and that's what the research is showing is that, that um just slamming health messages down children or adults' throats mm. is not working, even if it comes with the best intentions. And 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 you're on to something there in sprouting curiosity, so that people, uh, children and adults, start to look at things differently, become inquisitive, and actually try things. Because really, the key to good health is. Uh, variety. Variety. So a variety <laughs> of different foods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So a lot of people ask me as a nutritionist, well, what, what do I do, need to do to be healthy? And really variety is key because the more different foods that you eat, the more different nutrients and different wonderful things that you get. 
But most of all, the mo- all the different flavours you get. Totally. And then what's linked to all the different flavours is all the different forms of enjoyment that you can have, Ooh, yeah. all the different conversations you can have. So all of a sudden sprouting a conversation about sprouts is really is really wonderful. I love it. And I'm yeah. so, you know, I think actually I was reflecting on what it is that I wanted to say in this podcast with you because we've had these conversations a lot over mm. the years. But one thing that um, has really kind of come to the fore is that people are ready to hear a new way and to see a new way. And I see that through your social media, through your interactions online and through this podcast as well. I think that there is, you know, a paradigm shift from people desperate to just find the next fad or find the the cure-all like quicksilver bullet and recognizing that actually, yeah, variety, you know, it's a, it's a message that the media is probably never going to print on the front page that you're no. actually just eating a variety of great foods and having a good attitude <laughs> and, and not being so attached. None of that is going to sell magazines. So that's why, you know, it's the celery diet or whatever is the latest thing. Um, but yeah, I think that one thing that's really great to see is if you look at the best-selling cookbooks at the moment, all of the top five cookbooks have absolutely nothing to do with diet culture. There is like there's a rejection of, you know, it's Ottolenghi, it's Nigella, it's In Praise of Veg, it's Hetty McKinnon with um, To Asia With Love. Um, and the last one, I'm pretty sure it's either um, Shannon Martinez with her Vegan With Bite or it's Julia Ostro with her A Year of Simple Family Food or it's, you know, Saturday Night Pasta or it's Africola. Like all of these are very much flavour-driven and uh, pleasure enjoyment driven cookbooks so you know maybe it's covid maybe right you know yes <laughs> don't true. you think you know maybe yeah, maybe we're just like actually um i've spent more time at home this year i've done more cooking and i've realized that i actually feel better already just by mm. cooking more at home yeah, and you know true. what else can i do what other inspiration can i find so I heard that you mentioned your book in there called In Praise of Veg as being in the top five. Was that correct? Yes, it is. Yes. That's yes. your new little food baby, isn't it? Yeah, it's just just a little, you know, just over two kilograms of food baby uh, that, yeah, wow. came out three wow. weeks ago. And, yeah, it's pretty cool to see it up there with the, with the big dogs. So, um, Oh, congratulations. A really you, wonderful achievement. And thank you for sending my copy. I've sat and look through every page and what I had to have a giggle about was when you talk about the one of my favorite vegetables called kohlrabi (laughs) and in in there you say kohlrabi is to the brassica family what kim is to the kardashians more extra and best known for its lower end (laughs) i love that Um. um can you explain to us the flavour of kohlrabi and how you love to cook it because it is a vegetable that's on the shelf now, fabulous, Um, but lots of people don't know how to cook it. Yeah, so kohlrabi is part of the brassicas, so, you know, along with your cabbages, your Brussels sprouts, uh, your collies and your broccolis. And um, in terms of what it looks like, it has an um, engorged bulb. So what you would normally see, let's say, in the cabbage, you know, the centre heart of the cabbage, that's the bit that's really grown humongous, like a mm-hmm. like a nice big tuchus. And then yep. you've got the leaves sprouting up on top and all of that is edible. So the leaves can be cooked like kale chips, you know, you can, you can roast them. 
Um, the actual bulb itself, you can eat that raw. So you could julienne it, so finely chop it or even grate it into a coleslaw. Um, I've got a, a great kohlrabi Waldorf that's, um, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of flavor-wise, I would say it's a really mild, sweet cabbage. Um, and texture-wise, it's a it's it's not as fibrous as, say, a broccoli stalk. The centre of it is like the middle of the broccoli stalk. So if you're like me, where you chop the woody outside bits of the broccoli off and then you eat the heart and you just relish every moment, then you will love kohlrabi. And the other thing that you can do with kohlrabi that I really enjoy because it's so set and forget, is you dip it in salty water and then you roast it over a rack in the oven, um, so over a rack with a tray underneath, and you roast it at quite a high heat for, you know, over an hour. And what happens is the outside forms like a, a tough skin, kind of like a jacket, and the inside softens and becomes even sweeter and creamier. And then there's a celeriac recipe in the book that's kind of like a celeriac cheese. You could do the same with kohlrabi. So, um, you know, if you see kohlrabi on the shelf or if you get it in your produce box, uh, think of it as taste it. If it's young and if it's sweet, then eat it raw. If it's a little bit older and bigger and woodier, then slow, you know, roast it like that hot and for over an hour, about an hour and 15 minutes, and you will have yourself a side dish that is, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, or, you know, you could serve it, so chop chop into it um, like like a jacket potato and fill it with sour cream, chives, um, with, you know, sweet corn, whatever it is that you loved back in the noughties on your jacket potato. <laughs> <laughs> put that put that on your kohlrabi and it's just going to be yes. yummy, really yummy. It's a really interesting looking vegetable, isn't it? Because it's purple on the outside and it's white on the inside mm. and it's really great to just give it to children and just let them have a look at it exactly. and, and experience it. Exactly. My, hey, my dad hates carrots and he always has <laughs> and I'm heading down to spend Christmas with them. So do you have any some, like, give me so give me all your carrot inspo? Yeah, I think chances are he doesn't like carrots because when he was a kid he had overboiled carrots that had absorbed all of the water from the pot so they were just kind of really um, lank and the colour of a carrot when you've overcooked it is kind of um, like a stained, an old stained glass window or even, you know, smoke-stained right. wallpaper. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... Things that you can do. And I do. should mention he was, you're right, he was always forced to go. eat them. And one day they got, um, his mum lost the plot, um, bless her, and tipped them over his head. There you go. Whoa. I mean, look at, the, like, think about the trauma. That's, that's a trauma-informed conversation. And actually I've, I'm yet to meet a person who, when you dig down, hasn't got a memory like that, you know, uh, positive, negative, whatever it is. There's some food um, attachment where we can actually start to unpick it and connect over that. So maybe part of the reason why I love talking about vegetables is because it's a really great hook for me to make new friends So because I can find the solution to their childhood trauma. So, yes. Uh, yes. so for carrots, one thing that people might not know about carrots is that they are absolutely delicious when you grate them through a really simple salad. Um, so obviously in coleslaw you'll get carrots all the time, but I love doing a really, really yummy, simple grated carrot, cubey mayo and garlic um, salad. So just, a, you know, sprinkle of salt in there, mix all of that together. The carrot is sweet. The kewpie mayo adds to that sweetness and it gives it kind of a savory body as well. 
And then in goes the garlic. And that is not my salad. That's my dad's salad. So from my dad to your dad, you could have that. Give that a go. So I don't know if he's a guy. Is he a garlic fan? Does he like big flavors? No, but he will, he'll drink a liter of Kewpie mayo. So that's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And then you could even really easily, you could turn that into a slaw just by shredding some wombok through it as well. And suddenly, you know, you know, a bit of uh, sesame oil as well. And you've got yourself a really simple, you know, bit of fresh coriander. See, I'm like adding ingredients. You don't have to, but (laughs) you can. Um, And I think, I think that should turn turn him right around. So uh, oh. for now, you know, thinking about texturally what he didn't enjoy is it's that soft che, you know, the the the, the lack of chew to a mushy yeah. carrot. So yeah. crunchy, sweet, fresh carrots at the peak. You've got some gorgeous carrot producers up up north, you know, in Queensland as well. So you know, yeah. get amongst it. You'll love. It. He'll yeah. love it. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that. My dad probably just doesn't like carrots as well. And, it, like, it's okay for us to have foods that we don't like. We're not we, – we, we don't have to love everything. So while it's all great to try and em, embrace, every, you know, all the vegetables that we can, and that's what I always encourage, mm. at the same time, if you don't like raw tomato like I do, then just recognise that mm. and that's, it, you know, it's okay. For me, it was most definitely mum sending me to school. So we had, we used to, um, my parents had a stall at the market. So every weekend we travelled New South Wales doing a different market and we were lumped in the back. And then on the Sunday afternoon at the end of the market, she'd go around and get the cheaper fruit and vegetables from Mm. all the the, uh, growers. Um, But what that meant was on Monday morning, Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, I always got the soggy flowery tomatoes on my sandwich Mm. (laughs) for school that was always mushy in my lunchbox. Yeah. Nightmare. If you are going to send your children to school with a tomato-based sandwich, my recommendation is to keep the tomatoes separate. So have them in like a little, you know, a little snappy container and they can put the tomatoes in themselves a la minute. Like that would be like, wouldn't that be great? You know, even just giving them all of those little elements and getting them to assemble that sanger. And I know that some some schools they'll only have ten minutes, but at the very least, you know, it's that those ingredients, things like tomatoes that go sog, and then you'll get you know somebody who's still thinking about them decades later. So (laughs) now's the time (laughs) for those habits. And and sometimes it's okay to just not put stuff in the lunchbox as well. So I think sometimes the teachers would be quite mortified in looking in my daughter's. Some days it's quite bland. So, you know, most of the time it's a fabulous, nutritious lunchbox full of colour, full of variety. But some days, my gosh, either because of money or time or just she's in a mood for the last five days and won't try anything Mm. um some days um you know she might have some wonderful crackers with cheese um a wholemeal sandwich with peanut butter a natural peanut butter um and some things like that and that's okay because I know that when that she's actually just had a really nutritious vegetable with about uh, a breakfast with about three different fruits on top, mm. and then when she gets home, I'm going to serve her up um, some fruit salad, and then for dinner we've got this awesome veggie pack stir fry that she absolutely loves. So I think that 
lunchbox shaming is very real at the moment Oof. in Australia mm-hmm. um, and the pressure on making this perfect lunchbox that is wonderfully all natural and, and all of that sort of stuff, that pressure is a lot on parents and caregivers at the moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's really important to really have a look at what we're feeding the child throughout the whole 24 hours of the day, not just that those three small meals that they have at school. 100%. And look at also what they're eating throughout the week rather than just one day. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And, you know, when I wrote, because <clears throat> I wrote a, an article about the lunchbox um, years ago for, for Good Food, a couple of years ago, and when they asked me to write the story, I knew that they wanted me to write a perfect lunchbox story about like, this is what you can put in your bento. Um, but I definitely did not want to do that. And you were one of the people, one of the experts that I sought out to tell me what it is that we can tell parents to reassure them and to give them um, kind of give them a sense of comfort in knowing that it is one small meal within the day that um, you don't have to put all of this pressure on yourself or on your kids for that one small meal. And if they want to come, so especially for younger kids, if that meal means comfort, then it might be the same meal every day because there's enough uncertainty going on in that day. There are enough surprises in the school day that if it's a Vegemite and Butter Sanger every day, (laughs) For their for their preppy year, yeah, and that's cool yeah. because, as you say, the rest of their meal, the rest of their meals throughout the day and throughout the week, make up for you know whatever it is that they might have lacked in the lunchbox. And I could not agree with you more. The lunchbox shaming and the you know lunchbox policing. Asking teachers to do that is also not something that teachers enjoy doing. It's it's no. a policy that is absolutely invasive and it is very, very damaging. Um, and teachers come to this conversation with their own baggage, with their own food um, uh, memories that might not be necessarily good and with their own kind of... Um, underdeveloped understanding I suppose because they're not experts that you know we're we're teachers we teach English we teach history we don't teach um we don't teach building positive (laughs) we don't we don't get taught that ourselves at uni is what I'm trying to say so I think the sooner that us as we as parents and as um people within the sphere agitate for that to get in the bin the sooner we can continue to to kind of take the pressure off lunchtime and just re- realize that it's just like a point within the day where kids just need a, a moment's rest a moment's sustenance and then they can get back to you know learning and, and getting on with their day having said that you know i i'm really looking forward to um, getting involved in the school community when when Hazel goes to school and, and hopefully yes. yeah, integrating some of that because there's a lot we can do as parents and, and as, as people that are interested in this space, even offering teachers like schools tools and saying, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? The best champions of Phenomenon are parents that have seen the program and think, wow, this is something that I think my kid's school could really benefit from. And then they've gone off to the school and the teachers have gone, what do you mean it's free? What do you mean there are all these amazing quality lesson plans that I can just slip into my curriculum right now (laughs) yeah it's shaping it's reshaping I think the conversations that people are having in schools and it's because there are enough engaged people that aren't like in it that are coming in and saying hey you know here's something that you might like to give a whirl 
Yes, yes. And people can check that out on the Phenomenon website, can't they? Yes, so it's just like Phenomenon but with an M at the end, .com.au. So you're welcome. You know, I'd love to to know what you think and we're about to launch a whole new resource pack around food and mood that I think you're going to enjoy a lot. Yeah, yes, yes. And we worked with a fantastic um, friend, mutual friend, um, uh, Kelly, the um the curious nutritionist um so kelly kind of helped inform some of our um nutrition messaging and one of the things that that kelly continues to remind me to think about and check myself on is some of the language that i just slip into that we all slip into when we talk about food you know the binary kind of good and bad and um sometimes and every day my own perspective and my own kind of attachments to words and to expectations around what it is that people are eating have changed and softened so much Tara because I know that when I first came into the space you know my first kids cooking show um, Kitchen Whiz when I was asking the kids so what is it that you um, that you what's your favorite food and they might say you know I love a Big Mac and and my uh, you know I love pizza and at that time, you know, I don't have a very good poker face. I would kind of be like, ah, great. Yes. You know? And the, the producer had to come into my ear and say, Alice, you know, at least they've got a favourite. At least when you ask them that question, they, you know, their eyes light up. So let's go there. And then when I published my first book, Alice's Food A to Z, which was for kids, I was visiting schools. And the moment when the penny really dropped for me, Tara, was when I'll never forget this moment. So I was in a school in Punchbowl in New South Wales and I was talking about making your own food and I was talking about sauces and how when you make your own sauce, you know, you know, add whatever you want into it, da, 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 you know, what's your favourite What's your favorite sauce? And a little boy put up his hand and he said, um, you know, he was so excited and so enthusiastic and he put up his hand and said, uh, Big Mac sauce. And everyone around him giggled and sort of looked to me because they thought, okay, he's said the wrong thing. You know, that's bad food. That's junk food. And I, I had a moment's pause. Um, I had had a few years now of <laughs> checking myself and, and learning and this was it. This was the moment. And I thought, okay, what, what is this? What is this moment? What is the universe teaching me in this moment? And what is the opportunity here? And so I said, okay, what is your name, little boy? And he said, Mike. And I said, okay, universe, I see what you're going, where you're going with this. And I said, okay, Mike, let's make Big Mike's sauce. And then we broke down, you know, it was a, so, so it's a creamy base, isn't it? So let's go, it's a mayonnaise base and, you know, and we might put some pickles in there, won't we, Mike? And slowly but surely, you know, his face turned from bright red to like, yeah. you know, to beaming with sunshine and his friends around him were nodding. And it was, again, I think a reminder that, um, we don't realize and recognize the messaging and um, negative kind of um, impressions that kids are internalizing, and um, we have a real opportunity in this in this time now, as these paradigms shift, to continually check ourselves to the point where it just becomes habit, where we just stop saying the words that have been um, forcing us into guilt and shame and fear around food. You know, it's time for us to embrace that health and hedonism are not mutually exclusive terms, that you can have a pleasurable burger. You can love it. You can love it. It can bring so many gorgeous memories to you and, um, you know, you 
if that's if that's what you want and if that's what nourishes you in that moment, then have it, you know, enjoy it, bite, take every bite and relish it and enjoy those meals with your family and, you know, put the expectations that you think are on you that have been driven home by a media that is hungry for the next big thing, right, and a, a space where people are just trying to sell you stuff <laughs> that just makes you want to feel bad about yourself. Self, yeah. Ugh. All of that. I feel like we're really, this conversation is something that we've had so often and I'm so glad that we finally get to have it in a recorded setting that we can amplify and that people can hear because I really feel like what you've got with this podcast and with your community is something so special and I'm so grateful to you for, you know, giving me an opportunity to get on my soapbox and, you know, and and tell people that they're on the right track. They're doing great. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, there's so much pressure on all of us nowadays for everything. And I do see that food and nutrition is actually one of the ways we can remove pressure from our lives. Mm. Um, and if we start to strip back um, and and kind of try and tune out to a lot of that black and white thinking about food and nutrition, um, people can find that it's a weight off their shoulders. And Um, I think talking about food in a positive way and trying to avoid that black and white thinking is not just important for parents either uh, or or teachers. It's important for people who have nieces or nephews or little brothers or little sisters or who may be working in a childcare facility, for example, or people who are even working in an ice cream shop. So Mm. Um, an example is I took my daughter for an ice cream and she was so excited about this ice cream and the lady served it said um, said to her handed it to her and she was beaming and then she she knelt down to my daughter and she said aren't you a lucky girl having a naughty treat for the weekend you know and my my four-year-old looked at me like what are you talking about because I don't use that language Um, but all of a sudden this four-year-old has this feeling that their their ice cream is a naughty thing and the problem with that is that that doesn't teach children does it that ice cream is something that you should only have sometimes for example like we think it's going to teach them all that does is makes them feel like they're a naughty child for eating a naughty food and we carry that into adulthood and that is why these conversations and, and checking ourselves and checking the language isn't just about the kids in our vicinity, it's about the inner child in us. Mm. And and chances are that that lady is going home and, you know, when she eats ice cream, she's internalised that for herself, right? That's her naughty treat. And like, wow, yeah. <laughs> it's time for us to shed that, shed that, bull shiitake (laughs) oh one thing i put forgot to put in your intro is that you're the queen of food puns (laughs) yeah i forgot that one (laughs) i do love a food pun i do and it's probably because it's an opportunity you know when when people are um think rethinking food then why not rethink food words it's just a fun it's a neuroplasticity tool isn't it that's what that's how i see puns (laughs) (laughs) so uh, one thing that you are quite uh strongly advocate advocating for over the years is is 
is trying to reduce food waste and it is a a really big problem here in Australia. One out of every five of our shopping bags in Queensland uh, of food is actually being thrown in the big in the bin each week. And the issue with this is that it isn't just wasting our money, but it's also the effect on the environment. And that's because the food scraps they go into the bin, they get tied up in the plastic bag, they get taken to the tip. But then they get covered with more and more plastic bags full of rubbish. Mm. And the issue here is that the food then can't actually decompose because it doesn't have the access to oxygen and light. So then it sits in that bag and it rots and it produces methane and carbon dioxide. And that's where it then impacts uh, on the environment. So luckily the word is getting out there now on all of us, I guess, trying where we can to reduce food waste and i i usually cook using all of the produce so like you said you know when you when you buy a kohlrabi you can use the leaves as well you can you can eat cauliflower leaves you, mm. you don't have to chuck them in the bin <laughs> and repurposing leftovers is a huge thing that um i do we have big leftover family uh, and then the other thing I like to do is getting, uh, I, I've really gotten used to buying vegetables that isn't perfect and doesn't look like the perfect orange or perfect pear. So Alice, would you be able to share with us some of the ways that you try and reduce food waste in your home now? Huh. Uh, we've actually gotten a lot better at it, even through COVID, particularly that first lockdown where shelves were emptying out. That was very um, scary for someone that, that came from the Soviet Union where shelves were empty because there was no food. Uh, here it was kind of because people just started panic buying. But yes. um, what it forced me to do was actually check back in with some of the um, lessons that I'd learned via osmosis by just being in the kitchen with my parents and my grandparents and seeing some of the things that they did. Like mum will save the water from her corn when she boils corn and she'll use that as a, as a light stock that she'll then add to a vegetable soup or, um, you know, that she'll loosen off a sauce with or, or a puree. Uh, the same goes for, the, as you say, the things that when a plant grows, a vegetable, for example, let's take a vegetable, for example, most parts of that vegetable are edible in some way. Someone has found a way to eat those vegetables and I'm still, and fruits, so I'm still learning myself. You know, Nigella Lawson has a banana skin curry in her new book, which I oh, wow. I know, isn't that cool? So, wow. you know, and she talks about, so as it, as it cooks, it breaks down and it's silky and slippery and it's textural. And I just think that um, we are living in an in an information age, the golden age of people sharing and exchanging ideas. And so if you find yourself with a glut of something or if you are staring at those cauliflower leaves before you chuck them in the bin, get out your smartphone or, you know, device of some mm. description, whatever it is that you're listening to this on, <laughs> and search cauliflower leaves. And what you'll find is you can, you can, um, batter them and, and deep fry them. I've got a, a KFC, a Carolyn cauliflower, um, a deep fried cauliflower in my in my book that's like little cauliflower bites, like little nuggets with yeah. curry leaves. Oh, my God, Tara. Oh, my God. Um, but that uses the cauliflower leaves just as much as it does the cauliflower florets. So um, there is just, you know, taste it. 
as well just see you know start to get a little bit creative what I love about in praise of veg as well is that I asked chefs from all around the world what they're doing with vegetables and a lot of them talked about reducing food waste and and what they're doing so Juan Roca for example who's based in uh, Girona in Spain he uses the water that he boils the beetroots in to create the base of a vinaigrette Darren Robertson from Three Blue Ducks, they're using the corn husks, um, the corn cobs they're, they're infusing into anglaise to make ice creams, you know, corn, corn cob ice cream. There's just so much flavour in that corn cob. So um, I'm freezing a lot of vegetable scraps to make vegetable soup. That's a really easy thing to do. Um, I'm blitzing soft herbs up into ice cube containers and then popping those into various sauces and things. Basically, if it comes into my kitchen, it's not leaving in a plastic bag. <laughs> it's going to get used somehow. There's an amazing yes. book I should totally shout out. So the Corner Smith, um, Corner Smithies, um, Alex and Jamie over in Sydney, they've got a book called Use It All. So if this conversation inspires you, that might be a book that you can pick up. You know, obviously in In Praise of Veg, I've got Scrap Metal um, awards you know that's like a section for most of the vegetables where I say you know you know pat yourself on the back this is what you can do with the scraps but that use it all book is like next level for telling you you know what you can the do bible with the bible absolutely yeah so if you don't have a copy that's a really really good one um and I think actually you know even to the point of changing your behavior and changing your attitudes to feel a feeling of smug I like to cultivate smugness by reducing ah! my food waste. Like, yeah. like, yeah. So if I schmaltz is one thing that I'm loving sick. So schmaltz is the, the the drippings from your roast chicken. So it's the pan juices, it's the fat layer. That schmaltz is liquid gold. It's like a stock, I suppose. So yesterday I did a really simple gnocchi where I chopped up some, um, it's not that simple actually, uh, like it's going to sound less simple than it was, but I chopped up some um, chestnuts. <laughs> I'd been sent cooked chestnuts and almost turned them into like a mince and cooked them in the chicken schmaltz. And then I used little zucchini flowers and, and little zucchini, baby zucchinis from that as the bit of a base and the parmesan and, and the gnocchi and lots of cracked pepper and pasta water to loosen it all off. Holy cannoli. So wow. with that dish, you know, meat was very much the um, aromatic, I suppose. That was the flavouring because of the, the schmaltz. The dish itself was very veg-driven and veg-forward. Um, the flavour was phenomenal and I don't have these wilty zucchini flowers that I'd been sent and these random, you know, chestnuts that <laughs> were sitting in my yes. pantry. It's basically, and the, the gnocchi, which I had bought because it had a um, used by, you know, half price sticker on it I'm a sucker for a half price <laughs> sticker oh my god yeah. that's how I find so many of my favorite food discoveries is actually waiting until that kind of artisan artisanal product is on sale and then I'm just bam I see it yeah. I buy it and that you know, but that, that but can... also you didn't have to go out and buy a chicken stock for that dish <laughs> where then you have um, you use the chicken stock, but then you've got the packaging that goes in the bin as well. Exactly, yes. And there are other tools that you can implement. You know, there are going to be, um, I know Breville's bringing out a um, food composter. There's a Chloe, which is a closed loop little composter that can even sit on a balcony and chew up your food scraps. Um, so anything that is organic waste 
don't be putting that in a plastic bag and putting that in the bin because, as you say, that will not break down. So you're much better off finding other solutions, whether it is a compost heap or a closed-loop system or just something, you know, a, a, a bakashi on your bench top. There are other ways to, to deal with that food waste and it's an opportunity for you to, to kind of reframe your habits but also form really positive habits in the whole family as well. Yeah, so in the course that I um, I wrote and teach at the university for the Bachelor of Nutrition students, I actually get them into the kitchen for a day mm. and we collect a whole heap of food that's normally thrown in the bin. So it's all of that, the broccoli stems, the onion skins, the um, the corn cobs and things like that. And we give, we break them into groups and I give them a mystery box and they have an hour or so to create a dish out of what they've usually always turned their nose up about. And they get really scared. They're like, what are we going to do with this? Um, but then they go through that process and they produce um, a plate of food that then we all try. And the feedback always is every single year from all of the students how um, inspiring that is but also how much enthusiasm um, and how empowering it is Mm. because they didn't think they could do anything like that before and and it's given that it then gives them the confidence to try new things in the kitchen and I just love that. Me too. That's awesome. Yeah. And if you look at something like um, Oz Harvest, um, Ronnie Kahn's memoir is if, if food waste is an area of interest for you and um, I suppose what would I say, activism, social entrepreneurship in general, then Ronnie's memoir, A Repurposed Life, is just all time. It's so fantastic. Um, but what she has been able to do is, again, is force people to kind of think, what else can I do? You know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. And there is so much flavor also that's going in the bin. There's so much um, money and resources and um, effort as well when it comes to actually growing it. Farmers that are breaking their backs on their broccoli farm for us to only use half of it and throw the rest in the bin. Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We love you farmers. Thank you. Please keep doing what you do. (laughs) So I have a question that was submitted by uh, one of the uh, one of my followers, and she would really love to know how many pairs of frames you own. I would I would say I have upwards of twenty, and I've probably got. I know. know. But that's because I've been wearing glasses since I was in grade five. So that is a long time. Um, Yes. So really, I would say. I mean, wow, that is a really long time. Um, but in terms of the glasses that I have in play, I've probably got about eight pairs in play and it kind of, it's kind of, it's like jewellery. So depending on what mood I'm in, you know, I'll chuck on a, a pair of frames and it almost is like another aspect of my perso- my personality. Um, you know, I'm a Gemini. <laughs> So Ah, there's lots of, yeah, there's different facets of me and it's kind of like checking in to say, who do I feel like being? What, what Alice am I today? And then I'm just, that's me. (laughs) It's fun. Well, Alice, thank you so much for all of the wisdom you've, you've shared with us today and you've given us uh, lots of little um, directions for us all to go off and Google and listen to and read and, I do highly suggest um, that the listeners check out your book because it's a wonderful and inspiring book 
uh, for vegetables and would make a really great present. And I would love if we could have another chat one day down the line, Alice, for the the listeners, because you've got some little nuggets of of inspiring wisdom there. Thanks for sharing them with us. Thank you. And I, you are on. I will be back. We will continue this conversation anon. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, we'll have to organize. I think we'll have to organize a phenomenon um, musical. Yes. To, to Australia. Yes, totally. Between Nightshades and the new song about, um, you know, that a good mood's not out of reach. I can't wait for the bangers <laughs> to, yes. to, to hit the hit the stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, Tara. What a a joy to spend some time with you. How good was that? I really loved talking to Alice. We could have gone on for hours and hours. She's left us with some really great messages. You know, um, try not to pressure children around food have a look at maybe some of the ways you were brought up around food and whether that is impacting us now as adults and what we eat. It's okay to send your kid to school with a Vegemite sandwich. And how about this week, we all go and try looking for some kohlrabi in the supermarket and try cooking that up because It is a delicious vegetable and variety is key to good health. So trying some new vegetables would be a wonderful goal for the week. Alice's book really is lovely and you can get her book online and from any good bookshop. You can also check out Alice by following her on social media and her links will be in the show notes or you can look up Alice in Frames. You can also check out her Phenomenon program and I'll pop the links for that in the show notes as well so that you can go straight there. Until next time, that's all from me. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and I'll see you for another chat on another day about all things nutrition and health thank you so much for tuning in